Ecclesiastes. You ready for depression? (laughs) In the Hebrew, the title of the book is Ecclesiastes. It comes from the Septuagint. Ecclesiastes literally means the teacher. It is a Greek transliteration, meaning that we're not translating the word from Hebrew to Greek. We're just finding the Greek letters that are the equivalent of the Hebrew letters of Koheleth. Koheleth means teacher. So if you're really to translate this book, Ecclesiastes just literally means teacher. And these are the words of the teacher. And that's how the book begins. The words of the teacher are upright and true. And so this is where the title is coming from. We don't know who wrote it. There are, once again, just like Proverbs, there are many scholars who believe that Solomon is the teacher. And he's writing this after a failed life of not applying his wisdom. And this is the, oh crap, I have lots of regrets. Son, don't screw up like I did. But it very much could be that it's gathered by somebody else much later. And he's giving the credit to Solomon as the teacher in a metaphorical kind of a sense, not in a true literal sense. This is so highly debated that it's unknown. Now, as a refresher, remember the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job all kind of fit together. And they're all kind of dealing with different perspectives of this. So the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are considered wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are all asking the same question. What does it mean to live well in the world? So basically, what is the good life? We've already addressed that, talk about it. I'm just going to kind of review it because it's been a week and a lot has happened. The books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job are all asking the question, what does it mean to live the good life and live well in the world? Each book explores what it means to have the good life with three different perspectives. The good life is directly connected to the retribution principle. That's the main thing, the retribution principle, which means that the righteous will be rewarded justly, for good behavior, and the wicked will be punished justly for their bad behavior. It is not possible to have a good life when there is no justice for good and bad behavior in the world. There's a slight addendum to that. Obviously, there isn't a whole lot of justice in this world all the time, yet there is kind of justice in this world at times. And yet the narrators, both Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, is going to say it is possible to have a good life but not in its entirety, not in its absolute total justice, all evil being punished, all um, goodness being rewarded, and that everything being made right. Ultimately, in the idea that it is good to have the good life in a certain extent, sense, but not in the ultimate thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what these books are looking at. Proverbs provides a perspective of Lady Wisdom, who is a wise teacher, who believes that Yahweh is wise and just, and there's a clear cause and effect between doing the right thing and being rewarded for doing the wrong thing and suffering. So we already talked about that. In the book of Proverbs, it says, generally speaking, if you do this, it will go well for you. And if you don't do this or you do this, it will not go well for you. Proverbs allows for the possibility that that's not always true. Proverbs is not making promises But overall, it's saying this is the way that God designed the universe. He has woven wisdom into the fabric of the universe. And generally speaking, on an everyday basis, this is how it typically works out. And in the long run, it works out that way. Ecclesiastes, however, speaks as this cynic 
who makes the observation that this is not always true. Life is not fair or just. Sometimes bad things do happen to good people and good things happen to foolish people. That is an obvious, easy observation that any kid can make. This is what the psalmist is saying. God, why do the wicked go on and prosper? They surround me. They're, they're, they've entrenched me in my despair. I want them all to die, make their kids fatherless, and, or they're, they're, they're make them childless, and all this kind of stuff. He sees a world that is not just, but he expects God to do something about it. Now, a lot of times God doesn't do something in every case, and we know that. That's not a slander against them. That's just a fact. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. And so the psalmist then has to say, but I know you're good, and I'm going to praise you. But I don't know what to do beyond that. And Habakkuk is going to say the same thing when we get to the book of Habakkuk. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, but I don't always see this justice. And life is just random, and it seems chance of what happens to people, good and bad. And this doesn't seem right. But ultimately he says, but God is the God of the world, and he's a just God, and he's, he's a judging God, and we should just follow him and obey him because that's the right thing to do. And eventually, maybe somehow things will work out. Meaning is understood by him, even if though meaning is not understood by us. That brings us to Job. Job is the old man who has seen and suffered a lot in his life and questions the justice of Yahweh when good people suffer. So Job goes further. Psalmist is basically saying, I don't see justice, but I'm going to praise you anyways, and I'm going to expect you to do something. And I'm not saying you do it right now, but I expect you to do it sometime. Proverbs is saying, generally speaking, God does punish the wicked and reward the righteous. Ecclesiastes says, yeah, but not always, but you can still fear God and obey him because somehow he's still good. Job's going to come in and blatantly say, God is not just, period. And I want him to be prosecuted. And I want him to be brought up on charges, basically. He's good. He is the guy who has just suffered so much that emotionally speaking, he can't say the good theology anymore. He just can't say the good theology. Somewhere deep down inside, he probably knows he's wrong. And there's times where he looks like he's like wishy-washy. Like in one moment, he's like, God is good and I will praise him. Another moment, he's like, you should be put on trial. I am more just than you are. And you're like, whoa. Because he's in the depths of grief and the depths of suffering. And he just says it. But in the end, he's going to rest on the fact that I'm actually just and God's not. And that's when you're just like, oh, Job. Purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to demonstrate that humans cannot grasp the meaning in life and then, thus, one's only meaning is found in Yahweh. That's important. The message of Ecclesiastes is not, yeah, but. The yeah, but is to get you to the purpose of that we can't grasp the meaning or the understanding of why the world is not operating or is operating the way that we think it should. Therefore, we can only trust in Yahweh. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is going to say, yeah, but, and since we don't know why it's working and why it's not working, then all you have is go to God. Go to God. That's the main purpose of Ecclesiastes. But before it gets you to say go to God, it first has to depress the crap out of you and your own lack of prosperity so that you'll see the need to go to God. And that's the main purpose.
Proverbs consistently assumes positive results for good behavior and bad results for bad behavior. It says that the retribution principle largely works. Life is unfair, though, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is what he's going to dive into. The book addresses two principal questions. First, is human experience meaningful, controllable, and predictable? Can meaning in life and your experience be predictable and controllable? The teacher's answer to that is no. There's nothing controllable in your life. There's no predictability to the meaning in your life. Your ability to grasp meaning is futile. Some of you are like, yeah, but that's, no, we can have some meaning, right? No. When you do everything you're supposed to do at work and you constantly get passed over for the promotion your entire life, what's the meaning of that? You can take some guesses. You can say, well, yeah, over the years, I've kind of seen my character grow. And that, that humbleness that I constantly got passed up made me t- t- trust in God more. And it made me refine my character and it taught me patience and taught me not to sacrifice my family for all that power and wealth that I saw everybody else do as I got passed up. But largely speaking, you still have no idea why you really got passed over. When Joseph's being sold into slavery, does he really know why? No. When, when somebody's betraying you and stabbing you in the back and destroying your entire life and walks away and you never see them again, do you actually know what the meaning of that was? When, when you go to war and everybody around you dies and you come back alive, what's the meaning of that? Why did that happen? Okay, when you invest with this person because everybody told you it's awesome and it's working out for everybody but somehow it failed for you, what's the meaning of that? When, when you do, you're the exact same parent to a pair of twins and one becomes this corrupt, devi- deviant child and the other one is this amazing, godly person, what's the meaning of that? You don't know. When 9-11 happens, what's the meaning of that? And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is dealing with. The answer is no, life is not controllable. In fact, the more you try to control it, the more you just strangle the purpose and the meaning out of everything. And no, things are not predictable. And no, you do not know the meaning of anything. And some things you can kind of get a little bit insight as the Holy Spirit reveals that to you. That's usually not until 10 or 15 years after the suffering. But largely speaking, you still don't get the 100% absolute cosmic answer to why that happened to you. And I hate to say it to you, but that long list of questions that you have for God when you die and go to heaven, I guarantee you 90% of them still will never be answered. Now, I know that sounds very arrogant as someone who's never been to heaven, but I can say that as a fact that he's God and you're not. And just because you get to heaven doesn't mean he's going to get the God brain to handle all that stuff. You're still a stupid, finite creature compared to the divine God of the universe. And there's still many things that you're never going to understand even if he tells you, so why waste your time being told? And I know that's really harsh as I say it, but that's the reality. Okay, so... They're going to have a lot of questions that will never be answered. They will never be answered. The second question that the book of Ecclesiastes is asking is whether human well-being is possible. Is it possible to have well-being in life? Is it possible to have a good life? And to that, the author says, yes. And that's the tension. That's the difficult, miserable tension of it all. Because we know There's no meaning, it's not predictable, it's not controllable. But at the same time, we know that God has told us that you can have a good life. He has made us promises. 
There's meaning out there somewhere, and he's good, his reputation is trustworthy, and you live with that. And that's what the Ecclesiastes is going to split wide open, and that's what the book of Job is going to kind of end with. To this, the teacher says, embrace the tension. Embrace the tension. Life has a lot more to do with tension than balance and extremes. Most of the time we're like, oh, the liberal way is the way to go. Oh, the conservative way is the way to go. Or God's all about free will. Or God's all about predestination. Or, or, and it's, in order it's not, bal- it's not extremes, it's not balancing things. A lot of times it's, it's God has something like this. And then over here in this hand, he has something different. And they seem to totally contradict each other. The two pieces of the puzzle don't go together. But God says they do. And you embrace the tension. It's like Doc and Back to the Future. Okay, you've got this electrical cord here, an electrical cord here, and if you put them together, they're going to blow you apart. But God says, hold them together and enjoy life. And you're trying to embrace these theological tensions, these parenting tensions, these, and you, you're, you're never going to balance it, and you're not going to extremes. You're just going to hold the negative and the positive together in your hand as you're being electrocuted, and you're going to say, God is good. Okay? <laughs> And because ultimately the electricity will benefit your life, but electricity is also difficult to hold together. And I know that analogy is beginning to fail, but the reality is that's the tension that we have to embrace. That's the tension we have to embrace. Life has no discernible meaning, so enjoy it. Before you think that's a eat, drink, and be merry for all, and tomorrow we die and just carpe diem and seize every enjoyment you can, which can lead you very quickly into corruption and moral decay, given the human nature, there is a big scaffolding on that message. The Ecclesiastes is going to scaffold that life has no discernible meaning, so just seize the moment and enjoy it. And it's going to scaffold it big time. And that comes through the fact that there's actually two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's two voices in the book. And if you read through and you think it's one voice, then it sounds very depressing or very multiple personalities, depending on how deeply you're reading. But when you realize there's two voices that have two different perspectives but kind of don't, then also the message makes a lot of sense. And that's what we're going to go through. So what is the structure of the book? There are two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is the author and the teacher. Those are the two things that you really need to understand about this book. This book is largely misunderstood because that's not understood. The author is the one who we would want to listen to. The author is the godly person. The author is the one who has a very Yahweh guiding the universe. Yahweh is good. There is meaning to life kind of perspective. But then there's also the cynical teacher. The cynical teacher looks at life and says, life kind of sucks and it's random, and there seems to be no meaning to anything. But he's not exactly saying that either. That's what it sounds like on the surface. The author is basically going to open up and introduce the teacher. And this is going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The author is going to begin the book, and he's going to introduce you to the teacher, and he's going to summarize the main point of what the teacher is saying. Life is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He's going to spend 11 verses saying this is the teacher and this is the overall message that he has to say. So be like me getting up before speaker and I say this is Dr. 
Jimmy Joe Jew. And he is a scholar in the field of this area. And overall, he is known for this idea and thinking about this kind of stuff and these controversial issues. Please welcome Dr. Jimmy Joe Jew. Okay? And then everybody claps, and then he steps up. And then verse 12, that's when the cynical teacher begins to speak. He is going to speak for the next 11 chapters. And that's where it's depressing. Then the author comes back in at the end of the book of chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. So the first 11 verses is the author. Then starting at 112 through the end of the book is the cynical teacher. And then the author begins to speak again at 12, 9 through 14, which is the end of the book. And this is where the author comes in and says, I don't totally 100% agree with the cynical's conclusions, the cynical teacher's conclusions, but what his observations are of the world are good and true, and you needed to hear them. But now that he's spoken, let me give you the correct conclusion and frame it in the way that you should think about it. This is where everybody's listened to this speaker, Jimmy Joju, and he has spoken for 11 chapters. Okay, it's an hour-long seminar. And there's a part of you that's like, yeah, that's totally correct. That's the observations I've been making, but I was too scared to say it because I thought everybody would look at condemn me as being a bad Christian at church. Totally, 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 totally. Yes, amen. But then you're like, okay, I've made those observations, but now you're getting really depressing. Okay, do we need to keep talking about this? <laughs> okay, yeah, now you're just depressing me more and more and more. Wow, it can't be that bad, can it? And you're like, oh, yeah, I agree with you, but... But you're leaving a lot of things out. There's still the goodness of God, and there's still this. And, but then you're getting really confused because you're like, wait a minute, maybe there isn't. And then the author comes back in and says, all that is wise and true and good. And you needed to hear it because he's right. But I don't agree with this conclusion. So here is, and this is where the famous passage comes in, here is the conclusion of all things. And then he gives you the more godly conclusion. He frames everything with the correct scaffolding. So this would be like saying, wow, that teacher or that guy in the news had some really good observations about the world, but I don't necessarily agree with his conclusions. And then you go back to the Bible and God gives you a better conclusions, even though the observations are still valid. Does it make sense? And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's starting with the author, introducing the cynical teacher, and then giving you conclusions from the author. Other than that, Ecclesiastes has no structure. There's no structure to the rest of the book. And scholars have been racking their brains for the last hundred years trying to find structure somewhere because there's nothing worse for a type A researcher, beaver, um, number six or five on the Enneagram, who loves researching and studying things and everything has to be in its proper place to read a book like this and not find a structure. And so there have been many books written on the structure and nobody can find it. And many scholars are now coming to the conclusion that's the structure because life is meaningless and there is no structure. <laughs> that they really think that that might have been an intentional thing about the author because there are no themes. He'll give you a theme and he'll come to a conclusion of the theme and then he'll go into a new theme and he'll be like, you thought I was done. And he'll go back to the theme and bring it back in and just... And then it's just like he takes all these themes and all these ideas and a well-written dissertation and he just throws all the papers at you. And that's how it feels like it's reading. So there is no structure here. Although A.G. Wright, a very famous scholar, went through 
And he found a structure on key phrases that kept getting repeated over again. And so if you want to read through that, that's very technical. I've given you like four little mini paragraphs on that. But he divides the book into these prologue, part one, part two, part three. Sorry, prologue, part one, part two, and then a final epilogue based on repeating phrases. And so it seems to be the only structure is this free phrase gets repeated and repeated and repeated, and then it seems to be stopped, used, and the next part repeats a different phrase and stops using the next phrase, and that's the only structure that seems to be found. 